This is the Scaling Up Podcast, and I'm your host, Itamar Katch, the Leadership Development Manager here at SimilarWeb. And my role as a business psychologist is to ensure that we develop our managers to be the best around. Get ready to hear some fascinating discussions and stories with great leaders, and in the process, pick up some practical tips and tricks to add to your managerial toolkit. On today's podcast, we've got Run Regev, who joined the company approximately six months ago as the VP of B2C. And I was incredibly impressed. You've just joined this big organization, which has a huge responsibility and how you went about tackling some of the challenges that you had as the VP of B2C. So I thought you'd be a great person to have on the show. So welcome. Thank you for having me. First things first, do you want to tell us a little bit about your career today and how you got to SimilarWeb? Sure. I've been involved in Hitech for almost 20 years. I had a very interesting career path. I actually started a startup, it was called Orange back in the day. Today, people probably know it as partner communication. It's a telco company. I joined the company. It was a very small team, very agile team, a lot of smart people. And actually the growth of the company was amazing. In six years, we became a public company. We had an IPO at Nasdaq. I actually started as somebody who's just answering the calls. I was on the support side, talking to customers and clients. And then I've started to be promoted within the company. And I think it was the first couple of years I became a division manager, managed around 70 employees in the customer service division. And from there, it was actually very natural to keep on going to the projects and processes areas of the company. So I became a PMO. And after that, I actually was offered to head the business division in the marketing division. Grew it from $20 million to actually a bit more than half a billion in two and a half years. So it was a roller coaster. It was a hell of a ride. For sure, I think that was the best school I ever got. Amazing. Yeah. So what are some of the lessons that you learned from building such an organization from what it was to almost half a billion? I can tell you that in Orange, the people were amazing people. Very talented, very capable, very curious, resilient and we did quite a lot of interesting and innovative things that people haven't thought about. We emphasized the fact that out-of-the-box thinking, especially when you're in a tough competition, this is something that the company was pushing towards. I can tell you that after Orange, we got an offer for one of our clients. He was actually the founder of Empire Online. Amazing people. And we actually had another public IPO for a billion dollars, which was actually pretty groundbreaking back in the day. And we actually also exited afterwards and sold the company for $300 million. Then I decided to become independent. I opened my own shop. It started from an agency that providing CMO as a service. And we understood that there's like a black hole. There's a CMO or VP marketing position lacking in most of the Israeli companies. Six years working very hard on growing that business to over $100 million in revenue. We got acquired. One of the biggest clients bought the company and I actually moved to the investor side. So in a way, the first decade was mostly entrepreneurship, but eventually I've crossed sides, went to a family fund, a single family office that was focusing on investing in tech, but around Arab speaking countries, which was very interesting to me. I've been there for five years, mostly investing in companies between seed rounds, A to follow-ups to B rounds. In the family office, I was working with the entrepreneurs, the CEOs, the management, mostly trying to steer the business to the right direction. And I've learned through this journey that there's quite a lot of distress, quite a lot of problems with starting to start. Eventually, I've left the family office and established a firm, which is called Fusion Partners, which is mostly dealing with 
startups that the styles are not aligning right, distress, special situations, crisis management. And I was actually helping those companies to be revamped or turn around and eventually have an M&A in place or some sort of an acquisition. So that was something I've been doing for the last six years. Wow. There's so many interesting things that I want to pull out. You mentioned that you worked a lot with startups to support them in overcoming some of their barriers where the stars weren't aligned. What were the key barriers that you saw most startups facing? I can tell you that before we started the business, we did a very thorough research about startups. We took around 12,000 startups, slice and dice all the data from the 90s till today. And we understood that the major problem that causes those startups to shut down or have some sort of a crisis or distress is usually around the fact that they were developing something that the market didn't really need. So I would say that lack of need is the highest in the list for shutting down startups. I'm talking about almost 50% of the startups. Entrepreneurs that thought they have a solution for a problem, they found out, but it wasn't there. So I can imagine that when you have an entrepreneur, and it's also the same in a company, you have an idea that you want to implement and you think it's the best idea ever. You speak to the people who are in your team and they're like, yes, go for it. Or as an entrepreneur, you speak to your family, your friends, they're like, brilliant idea. How do you make sure that idea is actually a good idea worth investing in? And how do you know when to stop and pivot? Great question. From what we've learned, we've asked ourselves the question, why 50% of all startups fail or shut down and why they don't understand there's a lack of need. What we understood is it's an emotional journey for most of the entrepreneurs. Usually an entrepreneur, when he establishes a business or a startup, usually comes from something very personal, could be a problem the entrepreneur went through. And almost immediately, you're going to the inner circle, which is usually friends, family, and you try to get some feedback. And you sit in your living room and you're talking about the idea and all the people around you are not going to say, this is a bad idea. Most of the people are going to say, wow, that's a great idea. Yeah, there's nothing like it. It's not validated or something substantial, but this is something that happens. The entrepreneur falls in love with the idea. They're running very fast. They're raising money. They're developing something. They get to the market and it doesn't work. And then they need to pivot. Obviously, we have confirmation bias where you have an idea about something and only the data that supports your idea is the data that sticks in your mind and everything else is in through one ear, out through the other. How do you make sure that you become a person who doesn't do that? I would say that, first of all, you need to be curious. You need to understand that businesses are not successful if you don't understand the competition, the market you're in, the size of the market, all these aspects are a part of the journey that an entrepreneur needs to have. You need to check your competition. You need to understand what are they doing, how they are marketing, how they sell their product, how they price their product, the pros, the cons. So competitive analysis is one, SWOT, obviously, the total addressable market. And what we found is that in successful startups, most of the entrepreneurs went through a very interesting path. They didn't develop anything. They did research correctly. They didn't stop there. They actually signed up design partners, which is the potential clients that you're supposed to serve. Before even coding one sentence, they asked them a lot of questions. How can we solve the challenge? How can we solve the problem? How much are you willing to pay for it? They did the whole thing. And I think that successful startups, most of them, if not all, did the same. 
Wow. Yeah. I feel like if I'm going to translate that to someone inside a business internally, if you have an idea, you need to speak to all your stakeholders and see if that idea will solve their pain points. Because obviously they're the ones who are going to be on the receiving end and they're going to be your toughest critics. So it's actually exactly. really important to get comfortable being criticized for an idea and not falling in love with the idea to the extent that you're unwilling to change. Yeah, for sure. By the way, things change all the time. The market is very volatile. Technology pace is ultra fast. So you can develop something that within a year will be obsolete. So you always need to look around what the competition is doing. You need to build a strategy that supports it. If you're an entrepreneur that cannot do these changes and do it very quickly, you're bound to fail. So how do you become agile? From your experience of working with startups, from your experience currently at SimilarWeb, so it's a good question. It actually depends on the size of the startup. Obviously, initially, it's easier to do so because you're a small company. It's not a big team. So agility is part of the game. Everybody's doing everything. It's not really organized. It starts from chaos. But the more you grow, it becomes more challenging. Uh, I think this is something that you need to put in front of all the employees. Agility, running very fast, even if it's not perfect, don't wait for it. The time to market is one of the, I think, key aspects in a startup growth. And I, many people are perfectionists. They want to have the perfect solution, perfect product. They need to have all the features, everything. But based on my experience, agility comes from understanding the time to market is the holy grail. So I'm that type of perfectionist person <laughs> that will spend hours on a tiny little detail. You're more able to move quickly which allows you to be super successful. So what are some of the things that you think about in order to allow you to be agile? And you've obviously created an incredibly agile team as well. How do you do that? I think it's mostly around values. I think trying to find and build a team which is very curious, very proactive, not reactive, out of the box thinking. I think that curiosity is one of the main characteristics that I try to find in any of my employees. What does that look like? Asking questions. Try to fight this bias that you were mentioned. Hmm. Try to look at different angles. Try to talk to other people, consult, listen to others. It's not my way or the highway. There's numerous solutions for a problem. And this is something I think that in most of the successful teams, you can see it. Communication is another. You need to have transparent communication. Everybody needs to communicate perfectly. So people can understand the goals, where you're heading, the North Star. Yeah. So it's almost like once you've painted that North Star, people can find their way. It's not going to be mandated that this is the way we're going to do it. You allow people to be curious enough that this is the goal. Find your own way of getting there. Yeah. I think back to personality types, the people who are slightly on the less agreeable side, where they're more willing to get into debates, to argue. I feel like that is mm -hmm. a bit of a key skill in being agile, because in that scenario, you're willing to actually give the difficult feedback. You're willing to say, no, this doesn't work. I don't know if you find that in your teams. I love debate. I think I am encouraging people to argue with one another, because I think it in a way brings out a lot of positive things. Arguing eventually is communication. And you mentioned one of a, a key characteristic that's necessary for teams to be successful is out of the box thinking, being innovative. How do you cultivate that? We try in the B2C having a lot of team meetings where everybody has his own voice, no criticism. Tell us what you think. Tell us how you see things. And usually there's a 
very natural course of things that happen in such uh, conversations. People start to argue and there's always different people within this uh, debate, but eventually the more you create communication between people, I think that everything surfaces up. So I let things be very natural. I tend to not take sides. I usually put myself on the sideline in a way and try to steer the debate to a certain position, but I give the openness for everyone to say what they think. And I think open communication and transparency is one of the key things. Amazing. What are the other characteristics of successful teams? You need to be optimistic. <laughs> the entrepreneurship journey is full of obstacles, a lot of volatility. And if you're not optimistic, if you're not positive, it's going to be very hard to succeed. And somebody told me a few years back that uh, our glory is not measured by the inability to fall. It's by our ability to rise after the fall. And right. This is actually what happened at the start. Amazing. Something that I'm intrigued to hear about is what is your leadership style that you think is unique that you bring to a team? I consider myself a people's person. So like I said, I try to educate people to have transparent conversation, authentic conversation. And I tend not to go into the micromanagement and the small details, unless that's a beginning. It's happening now in similar way. We need to learn. So I'm starting from the small details, but eventually giving the autonomy for people to act, to think, to execute and even fail. As a perfectionist, yeah. that is so difficult to let go and almost see failure. How do you do that? I just let it happen. Just let it happen. Nobody has 100% of the knowledge. And I believe in trial and error. As long as you learn from those errors and you correct it, but always try again and try again. And I tend not to criticize. I tend to try maybe to steer it, but eventually let people fail. It's children, right? Yeah. You're going to say a million things to them. They're not going to listen. But eventually <laughs> when they do it themselves and they fail, they learn. So I truly believe in it. Another thing that I'm really interested in, which yeah. you mentioned, is the learning culture that you create in your teams. How are you doing that currently at SimilarWeb? Actually, it's pretty interesting that you asked because I'm trying to build an education plan, which is very much personalized to each employee of the B2C. Um, wow. This is actually a very challenging type of plan. I've started to streamline the main questions that I had through the managers. So every manager contacted its employee and had a conversation, whether it's in the feedback talks or outside of those feedback talks, just to understand what are the needs of each employee. And uh, it's interesting to see that, obviously, there's no one-size-fits-all. Yeah. Everybody is looking for something else. And people want to grow. They want to evolve. They want to be better at what they do. So I think it's a two-way street. You need to talk. You need to ask. But eventually, try to find something that is substantial, something that fits, something that is personalized. And if you build something like that, I think it would be win for both sides. There's a lot of research in this, in that the best learning platforms support learning in the flow of work. So it's Got it. ultimately <laughs> incredibly personalized. So when I'm working on something in this moment that I'm stuck on, there is a learning solution that I can basically utilize here and now. So it's learning in the flow of work itself, as opposed to having to go out, join a workshop, come back, try to remember everything that was in the workshop and implement it. And that's what a lot of learning and development specialists are trying to figure out how to do that within companies, how to support essentially every single individual to learn and develop within their remit. 
in the middle of their work. Yeah. And it's a big challenge. But what you're saying is incredible that you as the VP are creating this culture where all the managers are asking the right questions as to what they need to support them in and then trying to find the solutions that will help and then matching those two. Exactly. Amazing. A resilient culture. You mentioned was something that's critical to the success of startups. I also think it's probably critical to any team in an organization, especially in the tech space, especially now. How do you create that resilient culture? I've learned that, that it's all about the people. So I invest dearly in my employees, grow them, educate them. Like we said, encourage a debate or an argument mentality, talking, arguing, communicating, teach them the question to their hypothesis, always challenge them, always motivate them, get behind them. I think this creates a resilient culture eventually. So from what I'm hearing, it's firstly making them question everything, creating that culture where it's okay to argue, it's okay to have healthy conflict, but you're always there as that figure to support them. You're that safety net. So exactly. it enables them to be resilient because they've always got you there who will not criticize them if things fail. But at the same time, you've created this culture where they're constantly questioning one another. They're constantly striving for greatness using this idea of conflict. Mm -hmm. I love that. And just to expound on that point, there's a very famous story with the Wright brothers who created their aeroplane where one of them was highly agreeable. One of them was very unagreeable. And they used to argue the whole time on every single detail of the plane, literally. And there would be shouting matches that would last for months, but it was never personal. They were able to compartmentalize that they're arguing for the greater good, that this is the purpose of the conflict. And that's what enabled them to actually work really well. And one of the major themes that encapsulates the way that they operated is with the propellers. Originally, the propellers were going the same way, but that doesn't work. They actually realized that one had to go right and one had to go left. It's almost that opposing thinking allows you to get the best out of one another. Yeah, complementing each other. Yeah, there's another sentence that I really like, which is the sum of all parts is greater than the whole. All the people within the team are pretty much different than one another. And if you find the right formula, and how to complement each other, eventually you get a one plus one equals three, get something much stronger. I love that. Can you tell me about some of the failures from your early years as a manager? I've been failing a lot. I think that most of the things that I've been doing in my career, I failed quite a lot. And I think that when I was younger, I felt that I need to know everything about everything. And uh, I think one of the lessons that I've learned is that I really don't, especially if you're a manager, you need to hire people that are much better than you, much smarter than you. And your role is not to micromanagement. Trying to be top professional is not the same as being a top manager. This is one lesson that it took me a while to learn. No. The other lesson I would say is focus. There's a company called Snapple. When they first launched, they actually produced, I think it was 24 flavors, but eventually everybody drank the peach taste. Only peach. And I've learned I need to be laser focused to be successful. So th these, I would say the two main things that I've learned, which caused me quite a lot of failures. That first point of not needing to know everything. I think is so important that managers need to be able to completely trust other people. I'm a huge Liverpool fan and <laughs> Jürgen Klopp said, I'm good at one or two things for everything else. There are other people who are better than me. So I just give them complete responsibility. 
what he's done is essentially he created lots of leaders throughout the Liverpool team because they took ownership of the things that they were naturally good at. And he was completely comfortable. He said something along the lines of, I'm confident enough to let people grow next to me, not under me. He was completely comfortable having other leaders. And I think that's a really self-aware thing that managers definitely need. Know what you're good at, but more importantly, know what you're not good at so that you can then give that to someone else. You couldn't have said it better. It takes time to learn that. Yeah. I can tell you that being more mature eventually brings this insight, but it took me some years to get that. What is one skill you're currently looking to develop? Actually encouraging a culture of innovation, staying open to new ideas, fostering creative solutions to challenges. I think that's something I'm always looking to develop more and more. I'm actually taking the whole B2C, I think it's next week. I'm taking them to Paris Innovation Center for an activity, half a day. So these type of activities, I think, are amazing. Just to get people out of their comfort zone, yeah. get them thinking differently. Yeah. yeah. What is one piece of work advice you wish someone told you earlier? I would say focus. I think this is one of the best advices that I got. Run, stay focused. Being laser focused is everything. Most of us are failing at it. We're doing quite a lot of, of everything. Simon Tellis. Elon Musk is very famous for hyper-focus. Like he'll focus on SpaceX for three hours, solving a particular problem. Then he'll move on to Tesla. Then he'll move on to whatever else. But he hyper-focuses, also shuts down all kind of social media when he's trying to hyper-focus. Yeah, because so, if you're not, it's only above surface. You're not drilling deep enough. Amazing. Ron, thank you so much for joining this podcast. Honestly, thank it's been <laughs> so enlightening. Firstly, listening to the amount of companies that you've joined that have been acquired or sold or IPO'd is incredible. Your experience is fascinating. And I know so many people will learn so much from this. So thank you. And I hope to have you on the podcast again. Thank you.